I love Christmas. I love all the lights. I love all the celebration, but I don't want to miss the real meaning of what it's all about, Jesus Christ, God the Son, coming to us in an amazing way. If you have your Bible today, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're looking at the, the subject of radical taking back our faith, because I think in some ways, just what I described during that last worship song, about coming nonchalantly into the presence of God, we somehow got nonchalant about our faith, we got nonchalant about the way we are living out our faith. And uh, as I was reading through this little book again by David Platt called Radical, Good Things, Bad Things, I probably dislike this chapter that I'm uh, that, I, that I took the idea from today as much as any, he, he talked about two radically different questions. And, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of times in our life that two radically different questions pop up. The, the one that immediately came to mind is, does it taste good or is it good for me? Two totally radically different concepts. Does it taste good or is it good for me? And as you can tell from my jackets, I've been doing the taste good rather than the good for me. Uh, another one that comes up this time of year. Gifts. Do I want it or do I need it? Or maybe the other question should be, can I afford it? Those are the radically different questions. Uh, David Platt in this this chapter says the two questions we should ask as Christians is, what can I spare? When it comes to giving to the Lord, what can I spare is a question that we we normally ask ourselves versus the question that we should ask, which is, what will it take? to do the work of the Lord? They're kind of hard questions. And you're thinking, we're right here before Christmas. Pastor, don't bag on us about giving gifts. I'm not going to bag on you. I'm, this is really something that, that came to my heart as well, and I've really been thinking through this whole process. And, and I wish that David, before he had gone to those questions, I guess the real problem that I had is the two questions that I think we need to ask ourselves is Christ, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Is he the one that we're depending on for salvation? And the other radically different question that some people would say, well, of course, I, I, you know, I was born in a Christian nation or I, I made a profession as a child and I'm going to go to heaven. That's the question that a lot of us have answered. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I know Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. We know that one. But the next radically different question is not only is he Savior, but is he Lord? Is he in control of every aspect of your life? Or have you just given him a little sliver of your life? Is he Lord over everything? Is he the boss? Is he the one in control? You see, the reason that David asks the question that he asks is sometimes when you go to passages like Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, and you read this, it says, Learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. In Isaiah 1, it's a scathing message that Isaiah gives to Israel, and he says, listen, you come to me and your hands are full of blood because you're guilty. You come to me and you pray, and I'm not listening to your prayers. You come to me and you bring offerings, and I'm not going to accept them. I don't want to have anything to do with you. You come to me and you, you sit aside. Once a week, you come to worship, but, but your worship is, is just clatter. It's just noise to my ears. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And then here's the prescription, learn to do right, seek justice encourage the oppressed. And we think, oh, it's all about what we do. No, because the next verse, Isaiah 1, 18, see David, he references Isaiah 1, 17, but you got to get to 18, says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they, they shall be as wool. And he says, yes, your actions prove that your heart's far from me. So come and let me deal with your heart. And I think following Christ 
We should ask the questions, the two radically different questions, sometimes that we don't ask. And the radical faith helps us find the right question. It's not just that we need the right answer. We need the right question sometimes. We're asking the wrong questions. You say, Pastor, I'm lost. Okay, we'll go to Mark, Mark chapter 10. And we have a great illustration there, and then we're going to flip over to 2 Corinthians. We're going to see the other side of this. But in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, the first question is, what must I do? This is the question that, that a young man asked Jesus, and this is the first question that many of us are asking. And look at what Jesus says. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Matthew says that, it was, uh, says that he was a, uh, a young man. Mark, uh, Luke says in Luke 18, 18 that he was a ruler. This is, why, this is how creative we are. We call him the rich young ruler. That's how creative we are when we take those three terms and put them all together. So the man, a rich young ruler, ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do? Get that question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. There was so much speculation. Why did Jesus pick these commands? There are 615, 613 commands. Why did he pick these? Well, these were the kind of out of the big 10, and, and he knew the young man would feel pretty good about these questions. I think Jesus is, is setting him up in a way because the man's asked a question that's the wrong question, and Jesus is saying, okay, how about these? Have you killed anybody? Have you committed adultery? Do you honor your mother and your father? Have you cheated somebody? Have you, have you gone to court and, and given false testimony? And the young man can say, as he does in the next verse, verse 20, teacher declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy, since I was bar mitzvahed. That's, that's really what he's saying. Since I went through the bar mitzvah at, at 12, 13, I, I, all of these since I've legally become a man, I've not done any of these. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Don't miss that. Jesus looks beyond the external and, and he loves him. He loves his enthusiasm. He loves his, his passion. And he loves him. He says, one thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this a man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now look at verse 23. It's a follow-up to this. Sometimes we end too soon. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? You know, if it's this hard, how, how can anybody do it? Look at verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. What must I do? Number one, ask God to break down the barriers. When, he, when we're asking what, what we should do, we, this rich young man comes in here and, and he says, what should I do? And, and the Lord says, wait, 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 wait a second. If you're going to talk about doing things, let's talk about something that's going to be hard for you. 
Because this man's focused on earning his way to heaven. This man's focused on what he can do to get to God. And all of the message of Christmas is this, that there was nothing that we could do to get to God, and that God, in realizing that, sent his son. God himself came down to us. That's the whole difference between Christianity and every other religion. All religions are trying, man trying to reach to God. And the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ is because God reached down to reach us. Totally different. You see, if you look at the context, if you look just back at, at Mark chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus has just been talking with the little children. He blesses them. In verse 15, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, not earn this kingdom of God, not be good enough for the kingdom of God, but receive it. It means there's a gift. If you won't receive the gift of the kingdom of God, like a little child will never enter it. And he talks in other places, unless you have the faith of a child, a pure faith, a faith that's just coming without any agenda, you won't enter the kingdom of God. Walter Wessel, a, a, a great biblical scholar, says this, Jesus cuts through the man's elaborate effusive, that means gushing approach. It reminds him to think of the impl impl implications of what he says. Because the man has said, good teacher, and Jesus says, wait a second, you've used a word there in the Greek that is only applied to God. Are you saying that I'm God? And, the, and the, you can see the young man already beginning to backpedal. Good teacher. And he says, are you calling me God? And, and, and the man's saying, well, you know, just answer my question. I, you know, I, I don't want to go that far. And Jesus is, is already pinning him down. And he gives, these man, he gives him a softball question. Hey, have you killed anybody? Have you and, and a lot of people would come to church on a Sunday morning and say, well, I've never killed anybody. I'm good enough to go to heaven. I've never committed adultery. I'm good enough to go to heaven. I've, I, I, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also had a little, a little extra message for there, us there. He says, if you've ever hated somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. Ooh. If you've ever looked at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Ooh. Ooh. And if you haven't told the whole truth, then you've really lied. Ooh, you've committed false ways. I mean, Jesus could have nailed him on the things that he'd already said there, that he'd kept all those commands, but he didn't. He says, okay, let's just assume that you have kept these. You still have a problem. And what was the problem? Jesus looked deeper. In verse 21, don't miss that. He loved him. He saw that there was something inside him. He saw he was depending on wealth. Andy Stanley does a masterful job uh, of, of handling this, this text. And the thing that blows us away for most of us, when Jesus says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Most of us would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But he couldn't do that with a young man because the young man didn't see the barrier. It was there. He built up the wall against God, but he didn't see it. And Jesus needed to show him the problem that he had before he could help him. You know the problem with a lot of preaching and teaching today? We're afraid to use the word sin. We're afraid to say that there are activities and actions that we're involved in as a nation and as individuals that are sin. When you lie, it's sin. When you lie, it just doesn't mean you're a politician. It means it's sin. When, when you don't tell the truth, it's wrong. When we as a nation are aborting millions of babies, it's wrong. If you're committing adultery, it's wrong. If you, have, if you have a relationship outside of marriage, if you are having sex before you're married, it's wrong. That's what the Bible says. And you say, well, pastor, I don't like that. You're going to turn people off. 
I'm sorry, it's still wrong. I don't make the rules and you don't make the rules. And folks, this is, this is going to sound terrible, and I know in California this is not politically correct, but homosexual activity is wrong. And I know that's tough. It's not that we hate someone who's homosexual. What we do is we love them because Jesus loved this man who had a barrier in his life. If you're depending on your wealth, it's wrong. It's in the same category, by the way, as homosexuality and adultery and lying and stealing and cheating. And you say, well, I don't really like that, Pastor. Take it up with God. Don't tell me. The other part of that, though, is we need to see that wealth is not intrinsically evil. When Jesus is speaking to him, he's not saying, because you're rich, you're evil. And that's the other thing that we have gone in this nation. If you make a lot of money, you must be absolutely wrong. You must be evil. That's not what Jesus says. Look at Deuteronomy 8.18. The Lord says in the Old Testament, remember the Lord your God, who, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce enough to live on. Is that what it says? No, it says to produce what? To produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant. David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. Uh, even in the New Testament, we have some, some of the believers, Joseph of Arimathea, who is wealthy. I mean, incredibly wealthy to give what they gave. And the Lord never says to Joseph of Arimathea, give you money away. When Peter comes to the Lord, Peter says, drop your nets and follow me. But in John 21, when Peter goes back to fish, it says he got in his fishing boat. It's a personal pronoun. He didn't sell his boat. He may have rented it out to somebody, but he didn't sell it. He still had the ability to make money. 1 Timothy 6.17, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put hope in God, who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. When I eat cinnamon rolls at Christmas, it's because God provided them and Kathy made them for our enjoyment. And that is an advertisement and a request. He made us these things. We should enjoy them. We should, we should understand that God lavishes things on those that he loves. But anything we love or rely on more than God is a barrier to radical faith in that God. Again, a, a man by the name of Mitten wrote, the only way to life is through the narrow gate of full surrender. For this man, his wealth closed the gate and it became a hindrance nowhere in the new testament are we commanded all believers to sell all of our goods and give to the poor but we are to give the lord everything and if he asks us to do that we are to do that in acts chapter 2 in the middle of a in, in the middle of a famine in jerusalem many of the believers sold everything they had and barnabas was one of them and he brought it to the lord ananias and sapphira they sold it but they kept some money back and because they lied about it the lord took their life the Lord said, and Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, we never said you had to do it, but when you did it, at least be honest about it. Ask God to break down the barrier. You see, your barrier may not be wealth. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something else that you're relying on more. Maybe it's your good works. Maybe it's something else that you do. But what is it you're relying on to get to God? Ask God to break down the barrier. And then number two, ask God to achieve the impossible. Ask God to achieve the impossible. Jesus uses some really strange language here. It says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for the rich to get to heaven. Aren't you glad? How many of you here are glad you're not rich? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. 
I'm watching to see if you don't put your hand up, that means that you need to give more in the offering. So are, are you go, yeah, suddenly some hands started going up. Are you glad you're not rich? One billion people today live on less than one dollar a day. Nearly two billion people in our world today will live on less than two dollars. David Platt, one thing I do like that he says, says most everything in our lives in the American culture would be classified as a luxury, not a necessity. It's a luxury. It's a luxury to have a dishwasher. It's a luxury to have a a garbage disposal. It's a luxury to have bottled water. It's a luxury to have a lot of the things that we have. It's a luxury to have the vehicles that we have. It's a luxury to have an auditorium like this when there are churches around the, the world that would die just to have a chair to sit on, much less a heated and a cooled auditorium. It's a luxury that we have, folks. And we need to understand that. We have running water, a roof over our heads, and clothes to wear, and any kind of transportation. We're in the top 15% of the world's wealthiest people. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And I've talked to a lot of people, and they say, oh, pastor, I know this one because I heard a Bible teacher one time, and he taught me about this. And it says that there was, a, there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, and the camels had to get down on their knees. And the only way that a camel could go through that gate was to get down on its knees, and then it could go through the, the gate called the eye of the needle. Isn't that a great story? It's absolutely not true, but it's a great story. There's no, absolute no historical proof. There's no reputable documentation. Some travel guide at some time made up the story and it sounded so good that it's been passed on. It's one of those uh, old wives' tales. But here's the truth. I think the Lord was probably passing by and he saw a huge needle that had a huge eye in it that they would use to sew the tents. And he saw a camel and he says, listen, it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of that needle, that sewing needle right there, it's easier for a camel to get through that than for a rich man to get to heaven. And the disciples look at this camel, and they look at the needle, and they say, uh, <laughs> who could possibly be saved? And the Lord says, ah, you get it. It's impossible. The truth is, you couldn't get to heaven on your own, and I couldn't. It'd be easier for me to pass through the eye of a needle than for me to try to work my way to heaven. And the Lord says, but I'll do the impossible if you'll ask me. The young man came and he wanted to have some some actions changed. He wanted to have some habits changed, but he wasn't that concerned about the heart. Which is easier to change, some habits or the heart? Which one is easier to to switch up, what we do on the outside or what we think and what we feel on the inside? Of course it's easier to do the outside. Not that that's easy, but sometimes we can achieve some of that success. Ah, but the heart. James 4, verse 1, when, when when we realize what's happening here, we can ask God to achieve the impossible. And James starts out saying, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it the stuff on the outside? No. Don't they come from your desires that battle from within, within you. Don't you understand that that's what the Lord is trying to work on? He is not just so concerned about our outside activity because he knows if he gets the heart right, will the outside start being right? Absolutely. What must I do? Here's the other question that we really need to ask. And to, to get there, we need to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. How can I excel in grace? Here's the other question. Beyond, is Jesus Christ Savior? Is he Lord? Go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
Paul is writing to a group here in, in the church in Corinth, and this is a broken church. It has all kinds of, of problems. And he's, Paul, Paul is writing to this church, and the, this is actually the third letter, even though we call it 2 Corinthians. We, we lost a letter in between. There are probably four letters to the Corinthians, and we got two of them that were Scripture, and they were included in Scripture. But Paul, by this time, has really has begun to soften his message because he sees the Corinthian church beginning to grow. And look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. He's saying, listen, you churches in Corinth, look at the churches that are roughly what we would call Greece today, the Macedonian churches. Look at the Grecian churches or the Macedonian churches. Verse 2, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, I love that language. They're in severe trial, They have overflowing joy and extreme poverty. Those two combine to well up into what? Into rich generosity. Verse 3, for I testify that that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. I mean, as a pastor, I can't imagine people coming and saying, hey, we need to give more. We want to give more. Can we give more? And the the pastor's saying, listen, we've got enough money. No, please, let me give some more, please. And you're looking at these people, and you're thinking, they don't have shoes. They don't have clothes. They don't have food. What are they talking about? But they said, God's blessing us. We want to give more. Man, I want to be the pastor of a church like that sometimes. And and look, go on. It says, verse 5, they did not give as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on, your, on their part, on your part. What's the act of grace? It's the act of giving. Look at verse 7. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness or passion, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness or the passion of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. What's he talking about? That's the story of Christmas. God comes from the throne room God the Son comes from the throne room of God the Father, and he comes down to where? To a sterling hospital in in Egypt, in Cairo. Is that where it was? No. Did he come to Rome? Did he come to the best? Did he come to New York City? Did he go to Los Angeles? No, he he went to a stable. He went to a cave, probably, where they kept the animals. And he ends up in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. And he's laid in the manger. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. How can I excel in grace? Number one, give yourself completely to the Lord. That's what they did. They first of all gave themselves completely, totally. They gave themselves first, proton, proto. It's it's the prototype that we talked about before. The first thing they did is they gave themselves totally to the Lord. There's a little song that we learned a long time ago. 
I'm yours, Lord. Everything I've got, everything I am, everything I'm not, I'm yours, Lord. Try me now and see. See if I can be completely yours. It's, it's a little praise course, but it has a, a huge meaning. Are you his? We think if we give God an hour a week, if we, we think if when the offering plate comes by, if we tip God, if we just give him a little bit, that's good enough. Isaiah 19, 13, Matthew 15, 8, and 9. In Matthew 15, he's really quoting Isaiah 19. This is what it says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. What does the Lord want from you? Does he want your money? He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. God set the universe in motion with the word. Do you think he really needs your money? God created all the gold and the jewels. Do you think he really needs your money? He doesn't want your, your money. He wants you. Many years ago when I was bivocational, I was working at, at a, a car dealership. I was a business manager and there was a, a sales manager there. Tilden was his first name. And Tilden came in to me one day and he says, my wife wants a divorce. I said, Tilden, that's terrible. And he says, yeah, it's just, he says, my, my wife wants a divorce because she says I'm not a very good father. He says, I've given that kid everything. He has all the greatest toys. He has all the greatest goodies. He has all the greatest electronics. He has the greatest clothes. I'm sending him to a private school. I gave him a new car. What does he want? And he didn't know that his wife had walked in and she was trying to, to get him to acknowledge that they needed to go to counseling. And she walked in and she said, as she listened to him say, I've given, I've given, I've given, I've given. She walked around the corner into the, to his office and she said, Tilden, he doesn't want all that. He wants you. He wants a father. He wants you home occasionally. He wants you to go to his games. He wants you to spend time. He wants your love. You know what's the saddest part to me? Tilden never got, did get it. He got divorced. He got remarried and he had a couple more kids and she left him. His God was his work. He was wealthy, but he was poor. God doesn't need our money. He wants us. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What's the first sacrifice God wants? He wants you. He doesn't want an hour a week. He doesn't want, he, he doesn't want 10%. He wants all of it. He wants all that you are and all that you can be. He paid for it, and he loves us, and he wants it. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church to urge them to understand that this is the basis of living as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. It's the essence of discipleship. Are we relying more on God than anything else? It's the essence of radical faith. Are we willing to give Him everything? Give yourself completely to the Lord. Number two, test the, test the sincerity of your love. There's only one time in all of the Bible when the Lord talks about testing the sincerity of your love. At Christmas time, and I hate to even bring this up because it's not just about the money. But one thing that Kathy and I have to do is we have to set limits on our giving. You know why? Because if not, we'd, we'd drain every account that we have. When it comes to our kids, when it comes to our grandkids, we have three, three kids and, and their spouses. We have five grandchildren. And I, you know, the only thing I'd give them is everything. I'd give them all. And if they ever mention that they want a toy, Kathy won't let me. When we go to visit them, she won't let me to go to Toys R Us or to Walmart by myself with the kids. She says, give me the cash, debit card, 
I have one credit card she doesn't know about. But, but we still go. When you go and you're, I love those kids. I would die for those kids. If one of those kids needed a kidney, I would give it to them in a second. Or those grandkids, I love them. Is there anything I would hold, withhold from them? Malachi 3.10, the Lord says, hey, I love you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, cause and effect. Test me in this. Try me. Test the sincerity, he says, of my love, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much money. Is that what it says? No. So much wealth? No. We have people teaching that today. That's not what it says. So much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Folks, the blessings of God are not necessarily money. It's not necessarily wealth. The truth is, the richest I've ever been is right after I married Kathy, and it's not that we had anything, but I was so blessed of God to have a godly wife by my side to, to start knocking off some of the rough edges. She's had so many years of working at knocking off those rough edges. But what a blessing. Macedonian, Macedonian followers, the rich generosity spilled out of their overflowing joy, the extreme poverty. These people didn't have money to give. Murray Harris, another Bible scholar, says the, their poverty no more impeded their generosity than their tribulations diminished their joy. Get that again. Their poverty no more impeded their generosity than their tribulations diminished their joy. They gave far more generously than their slender resources and adverse conditions could possibly permit. Their love caused them to exceed all expectations. They didn't just give their money. It says not only did we first give ourselves to the Lord, but we also gave ourselves to you, Paul. We were loyal to you. We served you. They recognized that dedication to Christ was dedication to his servants. They recognized that, de that dedication to them was really, in dedication to the believers and to the leaders in the church was really dedication and a service to Jesus Christ. We say we're going to give everything to the Lord, and the Lord says, well, why don't you test the sincerity of your love? I have said that the Bible never says to give, to, to sell everything and give it to the poor, but what if the Lord is asking us to alter our lifestyle so that we could give more? What if the Lord is asking us to set a limit on how much we make to make sure that we can, can fund what the Lord wants us to do? Test the sincerity of your love. Number three, discover genuine wealth. It says, look how you've excelled. You excelled in faith, in speech. Obviously, they had some great teachers there. You, you've excelled in knowledge. You're learning the Bible and you're understanding that. You're, you're excelling in your passion and your earnestness. You, you're, you're excelling in love. They were rich already. They were already so rich. And then he talks about Christ. Jesus came fabulously rich and became poor on our account. He, he gave it all. Don't, mis don't mistake what I'm saying here today. I don't believe that we can personally give enough money to alleviate all the poverty in, in the world. I don't believe that we can possibly do that individually, that we can give enough that we can do away with it. I think there are political things involved with it. I think there's so much of the money is hijacked before it ever gets to the people. We've seen that in Haiti. We've seen it in, in other places. Uh, 
And, and, and there's example after example of that. And, and I don't want to go in that. That's not what I'm saying. But I will say this. If we know that there are poor and we do nothing, it's sin. Just because we can't do it all doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything. And I'm not necessarily talking about every person that's standing on every street corner right now. You can't drive through any of the the shopping areas right now without having somebody at every corner. That's not what I'm talking about. Find some people who truly are in need and give. How about people who need clean water? How about people in India that don't have any kind of people watching out for them and teaching them even the the basics of prenatal care for those babies? Discover genuine wealth and give genuine wealth is not in some bank account proverbs eleven four reminds us of that wealth is worthless in the day of wrath but righteousness delivers from death paul in first timothy says listen i know that godliness is great gain and he says listen it doesn't mean that that physical exercise isn't worth something but godliness is worth everything the wealth that god wants us to have is far more than that except for me Luke chapter 21. We're going to start flashing signs here. Turn off the phone. Luke 21, there's the widow who comes in. It's not the amount that you give. It's the amount that God has of you. The widow gives what? She gives two pennies in, in our vernacular. She gives nothing. She gives no money at all. She just gives a couple pennies, but it was everything she had. She had two pennies to go get the poorest of the loaf of bread to feed herself for one more day. She gave everything. Have you ever given everything? And you say, well, pastor, I don't think the Lord, that's not good stewardship, and that's not, and I'm not saying that it necessarily is, but I'm asking, would you be willing to? It's not the amount, it's the attitude. Two examples that that strike me. Fred and Radine McCullough's granddaughter, Aaliyah, got married to a man by the name of David, they were already doing ministry at neighborhood church and they decided that they wanted to do something more and they began to talk about going maybe on a short-term mission trip and then all of a sudden it turned into something more than that and they've been in training now to go to the Dominican Republic and they've decided that they're going to sell everything and go there and they're in the training process right now they in the midst of this training they sent a poem back to Fred he shared it to me and I this I think this so much sums up what we're talking about it the the poem that was read in the training program is called ants in the sugar bowl so send i you to ants in the sugar bowl so send i you to things that fly creep and crawl into the house to uncertain water sporadic electricity to long hours sweltering heat exhausting exhausting days so send I you to uncomfortable vehicles crowded jeeps smelly buses ever been in a bus in mexico Hmm, there you go. So send I you to noisy early, early mornings, to rice, rice, and more rice, or in other locations, beans, potatoes, and kimchi. So send I you to poverty you didn't believe existed, to masses of people like you've never seen, to know and work with people who have never known comfort. So send I you, and I expect you to adjust. So send I you to people who will give to you from their poverty, to friends who will embarrass you with their generosity, to pastors who will entertain you from their lack with beauty, 
to hungry, receptive, questioning people who want to know God. So send I you to study, to teach, to learn from your study and teaching, to prove your own motives, values, and beliefs, to learn about yourself and the culture that has reared you. So send I you to know God, to understand more deeply dependence on Him. So send I you. Are you going? I'll go with you all the way. The poems by Elizabeth Gibbons. I also got an email this week from Haley Welch. Haley has been emailing me back and forth. She's been in Hawaii. She went to the University of Hawaii. I asked the Lord to send me to Hawaii <laughs> for any reason. Missionary, pastor, beach bum. I asked the Lord and he says, no. But Haley got to go. We've been emailing back and forth. She's getting ready to go to Bible college. She's getting ready to, to spend some time to go as a missionary. And she wrote this, I have to laugh when I say it's been a crazy five months. God has blessed me immensely and taken everything I thought I wanted, wanted and thrown it out the window. Boy, has it been hard, but I couldn't be happier. I'm very excited about New Hope Christian Church, excuse me, New Hope Christian College, where I start at the first of the year. I'm really excited about God doing something brand new in my life. The richest girl I've ever known, the richest young couple I've ever known, because they're following the Lord and they have found a wealth that goes beyond anything that you'll ever imagine. And you say, well, I'm not called to be a missionary and I'm not called to do these other things. When you find out what the Lord has for you and you do it, you will be the wealthiest, richest person. And you'll ask yourself the question, how can I excel in grace? Is he Lord of everything? Would you bow with me and pray?